And I feel like saying, as I was saying. <laughs> so this is the second part of um, what we were talking about last night in terms of the seven treasures. So we looked through the first four of the seven treasures and finally ended up, <clears throat> of course, with these world-protecting dharmas, the um, notions of Hiri and Utapa. Now, just to remind you, and just in case you don't remember what those words mean, which I'm sure probably a lot of you don't, uh, the word Hiri means something like shame or self-respect. It's certainly our sense of ethical conscience and being in the world. Then, of course, we have um, Utapa, which in a sense is our social conscience, our way of being with others. And these are extremely important because they help us in our movement through life, both ethically and morally. <clears throat> and I don't want to again stress, as I was doing last night, that these, of course, are incredibly important for the Buddhist path. They are considered to be the foundational aspects. Sila, together with Hiru and Utaba, are considered to be the actual foundational aspects of it. And there's many, many times where the Buddha says, basically, it's the possession in our minds already not something we have to kind of import or even, in a sense, uh, invent for ourselves, the notion of hearing notable. They're in our minds already. What we need to do is develop them as well as we can. And that means, in a sense, work as it is, working on our moral social conscience and our ethical social conscience as well. Um, because they're so important. And it's this which the Buddha says actually distinguishes us from the animals. Uh, strangely enough, he says, because it's the absence of hearing Otapa in the animal world which you'll find. Well, you know, I imagine some biologists might disagree these days, but, but of course it's a very, very ancient view. Then we get on to what is known as sutta, which is actually learning. Literally means hearing. It means hearing uh, the teaching in particular. Um, and it's very, very important. We tend to, um, I think in the West, have a view, of course, that uh, the practice of the path is one of just sitting or walking or you know, basically doing meditative procedures of some form or another. Now, traditionally, this is not the case. The Buddha encouraged his monks to study the Dharma to actually learn the Dhamma, to hear it as often as possible in order to become, in a sense, and I advisedly use this word, well-educated here, but well-educated in the Dhamma, you know, well-educated in the way things are and the exploration of the way things are. So the Buddha is always encouraging his followers to do this. And I think, obviously, um, this is a, basically a pre-written culture, mostly. Writing was probably around in the time of the Buddha, but they didn't use it. There was a great suspicion of writing in ancient India. The first writing you find, really, is about 100 years after the Buddha's death um, in the Ashokan Edicts, which are inscribed on rock, which is something a little bit more durable than the palm leaves they probably used um, to write things down originally. However, the Buddhist path, as I say, has always included this dimension of learning. And in fact, again, here's another tripartite distinction that's often made here, that the, the practice of the Buddhist path involves three things. 
the domain is in Pali, which is known as Sutta, Chinta, and Bhavana. Sutta is what we're talking about. It's the hearing, it's the digesting of the teaching, it's the assimilation of it. Um, and it's not education and simply knowledge-based. Knowledge-based is nothing. Um, as I said the other night, that knowledge itself won't attain liberation. You know, just simple intellectual knowledge. You can have all the knowledge, you can have all the Buddhist books around you, and it will not benefit you one iota at all. However, a certain degree of it is important, a certain degree of understanding in the sense that it provides an impetus behind the practice. So the practice was, in a sense, also rational. Uh, the Buddha did not, by the way, say, leave your brains at the meditation room door. He said, come with your brains into the room, you know, because it's extremely important that you begin to think through the teaching. And the teaching itself was then, after hearing and digesting it, was to be examined in great detail. This was chinta. And actually the full versions of this are suttamai panya, which actually means uh, the, the wisdom or the understanding that comes through hearing. You know, almost the sort of thing that you might be doing now, just listening to what is being said and attempting to digest it. Then there comes, of course, the next critical point, which is very, very important, which is known as chinta mai panya. The wisdom or the insight that comes through investigating the teaching. Actually, it means, literally the word chinta means reasoning it out for yourself. So this was very important. As I said you know, the other night, that the Buddha is saying, basically don't believe the word I say. Or certainly don't accept it simply because I say it. You've got to listen to it. You know, there's no point in blocking your ears and, and then, say, claiming um, that it's not sound or it's not efficacious simply because you haven't been attentive enough to listen to it. But the next stage, then, is this reasoning process, this thinking it through, this investigating it through for yourself, to see whether it makes sense in terms of your own experience. And remember, that is the only place it will make sense in terms of your own experience. I mean, I know I keep using the word important, but this is absolutely essential, this idea of examining the teaching. Because otherwise it becomes, actually, I think what some people last night were feeling about the word faith, it has a danger of dropping into something like blind propositional faith. You know, oh, the Buddha said, therefore, I should. Um, and that's not what he's saying. He's saying examine it as far as you can. You know, within the range of your own experience. See whether it has any efficaciousness. See how it connects. See how it doesn't connect you know, as well. That's also important. You know, what is going wrong? What is missing? What is absent? Um, also, in terms of our own experience sometimes. So it's this, again, fully rounded picture that's being presented. And of course, finally, if you find it efficacious, if you find it useful, having listened and reasoned it through, what do you do next? You practice it. You cultivate it. And that is the bhavana maipanya, the wisdom or the insight or understanding which comes through cultivation. And remember this word bhavana is cultivation. 
not meditation, actually, in a, fully, in, in a Buddhist context. It's the word that usually gets translated as meditation. But going right back to almost seven days ago, when I said, you know, Buddhists cultivate, they don't meditate. We're engaged in growing something. <laughs> you know, keep your little plot nice, keep feeding it, uh, and keep growing, you know, because this is growing your own here, in your own little plot of land. Um, and that is what's important. So you're either growing, for example, or you are, you're growing, you're growing wisdom, you're growing panya, insight, or you're growing, for example, calm, or in the particular practices we've been doing this week, you are growing kindness, you are growing love, friendliness, you know, towards other beings. Beings including ourselves, but other beings as well. So that's the three-part strategy. And really, when you look through the traditions, nearly all traditions, even the supposedly most anti-bookish um, type traditions, well, I use the book now as a kind of the substitute that a lot of us have for hearing, um, because we don't often hear the teachings that much, whereas in an oral culture you would have heard them a lot more frequently. Of course, they're a lot more dynamic when you hear them actually um, you know, spoken as opposed to just reading them in the book. They can be quite flat when you read them in the book. But in the absence of that, even the most bookish cultures still say that you have to have this degree of appropriation of the material before you can even begin to start to cultivate properly. So it is a very balanced path, and I hope if you go away with nothing else other than this week, hopefully with a lot of loving kindness, <laughs> but if you go away with nothing else, with the idea, at least from the talks, that it's a balanced path. It's neither rating one thing more heavily nor another thing more heavily, and this is why it is always a middle way. It is always a middle way because it's about balance. It's not going to the intellectual, it's not going purely to the practical, it's not going purely to the ethical, it's the mix of all of these things together which constitutes the path. So actually, really what it should leave you is absolutely no remainders in your life. There should be nothing left over that isn't taken up by the Dhamma. Is that frightening? <laughs> But there isn't anything left over, because that's actually what it's intending to do, is take out every dimension of your life and, in a sense, get you to, you know, to draw you into its practice, to draw you into the investigation of the Dhamma, and draw you into that understanding about the way things really are. And you need all of those things. You need the hearing, you need the teaching, you need the learning, you need the reasoning, and you definitely need the cultivation that comes out of it. So that is the fifth of the treasures that make you rich beyond material wealth. Then we come to another extremely important Buddhist virtue, which is chaga, which is actually generosity. Now many of you might be familiar with another word, which is often used, which is actually slightly incorrectly, uh, dana, which is this word which actually means to give. Uh, it's the verb to give, whereas chaga is the word for generosity here. And there are different types of generosity, and generosity is a generosity of spirit as much as anything else. It's not just a generosity of material things, of money, of 
you know, the kinds of things that we naturally think that generosity implies. So it's really how you give yourself, and that is the key to the whole of the notion of generosity, is the giving of yourself in it. Um, because it's lessening ego attachment. Remember this morning when I was actually, when we started this morning, I was saying actually the path is about the development of non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And the antidotes, of course, to non-greed, one of them being renunciation, which I talked about this morning, the other, of course, being generosity. And each of these things is a diminishment of this overpowering sense of the self. Now, Buddhist cultures um, are replete, even to this day, it's an extremely important dimension to Buddhist culture. You know, from you know, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma, to you know, Tibet and you know, China and places like this, well, there's small pockets of Buddhism that remain in China, generosity is the far, one of the foundations of the practice. In fact, if nothing else, if you cannot do anything else, as historically the majority of lay people haven't been able to do anything else, and I think I've mentioned this again at some point, that, of course, in these traditional cultures, historically, they did not simply have the time to do things like study and cultivation. So, but what they did have was the ability to be generous. Now, one of the things that often struck me about the East, um, and again, I don't want to over-romanticize it because it's got you know, awful faults as well, but one of the things that often struck me about the East, particularly traveling around in India, is the astonishing generosity of ordinary people when you're traveling. Sometimes embarrassingly so. I remember sitting in tram, I remember sitting on long train journeys in India, going from North India to South India, and sometimes a very poor family would be offering to share their food with you. You know, this is all they had uh, for the train journey, and they'd offer to share it with you. Uh, and you knew that you had far more, even though I was travelling at that time with a very limited amount of money, you know, a very sort of expendable amount of money in terms of it was going to run out pretty soon, but I still had a lot more than these people. And felt very, very embarrassed about having to accept, but of course it was so rude not to accept. And actually that's the other part of generosity, generosity to be able to accept. Yeah. Some people are terribly good at giving, but not accepting as well. And so that's the other dimension to generosity here. So it's about the reciprocity of giving and receiving here. And one of those things about these traditional cultures is that it's instantiated right into the heart of the cultures, the idea of giving. When the tsunami hit Thailand, it was one of the few of the countries which was hit which didn't have to resort to huge amounts of foreign aid to cope with the problem. Uh, simply because they generated nearly all of the money internally uh, to be able to cope with the, you know, with the disaster and refugees and everything else that had gone on in Thailand because of the very, very strong tradition in Thailand of dana, you know, or of chaga, of generosity or giving in these instances. So it's absolutely fundamental there. If nothing else, we can give. We can give of ourselves, we can give of our time, we can give of our money, we can give of our possessions, 
Um, but it's that spirit of generosity of giving, which is often extremely rare in the West. Um, we do have cultures of philanthropy in the West, but sometimes they're what I call gift without presence. You know, they're always something, they always come with strings attached um, to them. Um, particularly we have this season, which I, if I recollect, I think it's called Christmas. <laughs> which is often about uh, lots of strings attached. Um, I don't know if any of you read it, but there's, there's uh, one of James Joyce's famous works, is Finnegan's Wake. Um, and there's a wonderful little letter that's supposedly sent by the two children to their parents on Christmas Eve. Um, and because it's all puns, and the whole of the book is written in puns, but this particular pun I think is lovely, because he said that they send their mum and dad Yule-died greetings. <laughs> Which I think says a lot about Christmas. Some of you might not get that, but it's, uh, it's a particular pun. <laughs> Yule being Christmas, died, obviously the death of and tied, greetings for greetings. <laughs> Here we are. Um, and I think that says a lot about often what this culture of so-called giving is in the West. It's actually about the, you know, the matching of what people have spent rather than actually giving in any free sense. So it's to give freely that's at the heart of this. To give because you want to give. And even if you don't want to give, to give as well. Um, there is something quite behavioristic about a lot of Buddhist practice, and it's worth actually pointing this out, because in the absence of any deep feeling uh, or emotion that one should do something, um, then still do it, <laughs> in particular in its virtuous behaviour. This could be applied, although I'll give it in a slightly different context, which really is going to apply to tomorrow night's talk as well, which is going to be on compassion. But, for example, I remember one teacher, Tibetan teacher, saying um, when a number of his students, particularly Western students, were complaining to him, saying, you keep telling us to be compassionate, but I don't feel compassionate. And the teacher looked at them quizzically and said, feel compassionate? Just behave compassionately. <laughs> you know, it's like feeling generous? Well, just behave generously. You know, as you can see, uh, often what is seen within Buddhist um, training is that the way sometimes to get an inkling about a feeling, even if you haven't got it, is to engage in the behaviour that goes with it. If you engage in the behaviour enough, you might get it. <laughs> yeah. Now, we in the West have this idea, of course, that we don't do anything until it's authentic. I call this the myth of authenticity. You know, we sit around and say, look, look I, I can't possibly um, be compassionate or give at this moment in time because it's, it's not arising authentically. It's not really there in my mind. You could wait the whole of your life <laughs> for this to happen. You know, and it never happens, you know, all the way through to death. So in the absence of that, do, <laughs> give. Um, engage in compassion, engage in the other virtues that Buddhism talks about. However, that is not the end of the story in terms of, of generosity. 
because one of the other, that's the first part of generosity, which actually has a name, which I won't bother you with. But the second part of generosity is the giving of friendship. The giving of friendliness. Or, because it's called abaya, the giving of fearlessness to others. You know, through commonality, through solidarity, through friendship, through the deep bond of friendship. Um, some of you may have seen some of these standing Buddha statues, for example, that have the hand raised. And the hand raised is actually the gesture of fearlessness, the giving of fearlessness to those who the Buddha encounters. And it's that which is considered to be the second of the principal gifts. And just think of how important that is, the gift of friendship, the gift of being with others, the gift of friendliness towards others, rather than the gift of irritability, or the gift of grumpiness, the gift of miserliness. <laughs> I could go on, but I won't. So there's many other ways we could give, but the way the Buddha recommends, of course, is to give friendship, to offer friendship, to offer friendliness to others, to offer um, fearlessness, you know, that you can approach me, that anybody can approach me without fear, and that I can give you that encouragement and that solidarity to create that, that feeling of fearlessness and hopefully friendship towards others as well. And then finally, there is the ultimate gift of all, of the gift of the Dhamma. Now, traditionally, of course, in Buddhist cultures, just a little bit of kind of social historical background here, in Buddhist cultures, of course, it's been a relationship between the laity and the monastic sangha. And the monastic sangha is those that gives the gift of the Dhamma. In turn, for being supported via generosity by the lay sangha, by the laity, in other words. And it's a social relationship, it's a social contract that is enacted there. However, we don't live quite in those societies, yet the gift of the Dhamma is something which is almost incalculably invaluable uh, according to the tradition, no matter how it is given. If it is given freely and if it is given honestly to others, because it is that, obviously, which can change people's lives. It is that, actually, which in a way denotes a Buddha. Because a Buddha is said to have this one characteristic, that the Buddha teaches the Dhamma. He instantiates or he brings into being, um, I won't say the being the Dhamma, he actually, in some senses, just gives the Dhamma. Because the Dhamma is always there. The, thing, the way things are never changes. It's the way things are. You know, so the Buddha doesn't invent the Dhamma. What he does, he comes to give the message about the way things are. That's all. In other words, he's unveiling it, giving it, when it's being covered over. And so it's these three things which characterize the spirit of generosity in the whole of Buddhism. It's the giving of ourselves, of materiality, the giving of friendship, and the giving of the Dhamma. That constitutes the complete world of generosity. And I can very well see why, within the tradition, I don't know whether it has resonances with yourselves, I'll leave you for, to decide that, but I can see why it's considered to be such a jewel or, or an important treasure that it brings, in a sense, um, 
something beyond material wealth. These are not, in a sense, quantifiable. All of these virtues which we've spoken about, none of them. Morality, that's not quantifiable. Hirium otapa, the ethics and the morals, they're not really quantifiable. Sada, the trust that we have, that's not quantifiable and so on and so forth, all the way through these things, they are, in a sense, beyond quantification. But if we truly have them in our psyche, if we have them in in the midst of our lives. And the final treasure here is panya, wisdom, understanding or insight. In many ways, the whole of the Buddhist path can be divided into two dimensions, which is the dimension of compassion and the dimension of wisdom. In the Tibetan tradition, he's saying you know, in order to gain awakening, one must have the two wings of the bird. You must have compassion and you must have wisdom, because otherwise the bird is a bit floppy. <laughs> it can't quite take off. Um, in order to take off, you need the two wings. You need the insight and you need the compassion. Well, the compassion I'm leaving till tomorrow night, and we'll talk about that um, you know, in the subject of a whole separate talk. However, the insight and the wisdom is nothing intellectual. Let's, let's really make that clear. It's n- not a whole load of knowledge. It's not book learning. It's not intellectualism as I say what it is is a penetrating understanding about the way things are it's the ability to look into the heart of something and see what is required what is necessary in that moment it is to see obviously that things are impermanent and they're selfless and if one attaches permanence and selfhood, that they end up as being dukkha in all cases. You know, so actually the content of the wisdom and the content actually of the awakening really is the understanding of dukkha, the understanding of impermanence and the understanding of not-self. Again, it makes it sound really simple. <laughs> but of course it's really, really difficult. Now. One of the things that always strikes me about practice is that we do it again and again and again and again and again, and we hear the teachings again and again and again and again. And I'm sure many of you sat through talks similar to this, if not of identical content. However, there's something that's not quite going in. (laughs) It's as if somehow we don't quite get it. because and and this is kind of setting tragedies and all that stuff apart if we really got the truth of impermanence I wouldn't get upset when I lost something I wouldn't get upset if I broke something or it was mislaid or it was stolen I wouldn't get upset in any of those instances if I really understood that things are impermanent but I go Oh yeah, I understand everything's important. Where's my pen gone? <laughs> it's that is the fact that we simply don't get it. And so actually what Panya is, is 
in quite kind of crude terms, is getting it. That is what Panya is about. And then being able to see into the causes and conditions that in some senses are there in terms of you know, the arising and passing away of states, the creation of dukkha, the, the process of the self. Because in this process of not getting it, in this kind of movement of not actually getting the content of it, we're still attached to the idea of some degree of permanence and still attached to some idea of the not-self. Or the self, I should say, actually. Yeah. In other words, we still think, yeah, oh, this is not self, and that is not self, and that is not self, and that is not self. But there's a little bit there that is. It's almost as if you keep going further and further down, just placing the burden of selfhood further down you know, within, you know, within the process itself. And so this, is, this getting it, this panya, is when one starts to really live the embodied understanding of it. Now use that deliberately, that term, because it's nothing to do with this. You know? It's everything to do with this. The way that we embody our understanding, the way that we embody our compassion, the way that we embody our kindness. You know, all of these are part of Panya, actually. You know, even though I said I wasn't going to talk about compassion. Compassion becomes embodied. You really understand it when you enact gestures of compassion. When your gestural being, what's, what generally goes under the name of body language, reflects that kindness, that compassion, and that wisdom in ordinary life. You know? A lot of what we do in ordinary life reflects actually the opposite of that, doesn't it? It re- you know, basically reflects the lack of care, the lack of kindness, the lack of understanding. Think of all those times sometimes when we're with another person, perhaps listening, or not listening, hearing probably better, but not listening in many instances. Or because the person who's trying to unravel and tell us their problems, we're trying to solve them before they've even finished telling us them. <laughs> yeah, that's how little we listen. And that, in a sense, is part of our gestural being in this world. That the mind is racing ahead, trying to you know, solve the problem before it's even stated fully. How our ordinary day-to-day bodily gestures, our hand gestures, our bodily stance can reflect you know, understanding and wisdom and compassion or the complete opposites of those. So it really does come back to this totality. Panya is this embodied understanding which reflects the totality of how much, in a sense, of all of the above, of the other six treasures, we've really taken into ourselves. I almost think of it, although I wouldn't want to push this too far because I'm, I'm not a scientist, I'm not involved in it, but almost I think of it really this understanding settling almost in a cellular molecular level into our being. It really permeates us so much. It's like <clears throat> I've been de- trying to describe to you in the process of the development of kindness. What are we doing? We're trying to let it percolate down into our being and infuse so that we're steeped in it 
that we're steeped in kindness. And so it becomes not just a mental turning, but a whole bodily turning as well. Whereby my being reflects that. We can all very easily, of course, speak about kindness. We can all very easily speak about understanding and easily speak about compassion. But when it actually comes down to it, does our actual being in the world reflect that? That is the test. As we know with somebody who is tense, distraught, uptight, as they enter into a room, you can feel it. You can feel it palpably. As with somebody who enters into the room with the complete opposite of all that, with friendliness and kindliness, um, you feel it. It becomes tangible, almost. Um, A friend of mine is a a journalist on The Guardian, and um, she was religious correspondent for The Guardian for many, many years. And she decided when when the Dalai Lama was on one of his visits over here that she would introduce the Dalai Lama to some of the hard-bitten war correspondents. Um, And she said the war correspondents, when she said that she was going to do this to them, uh, because they were going to have breakfast together, apparently, were going to go, oh, just a guy in fancy dress. Giggling all the time, you know. Where are you meeting from? Apparently, she said they, um, uh, that within about ten minutes of being with the Dalai Lama, they all go, "Oh yes, oh yes." <laughs> <laughs> and I really, I mean, I pondered on this, and I was actually talking with her about it, and I was like saying, "Well, obviously, it's because he actually reflects what he talks about." It's not just a stance, it's not just a mental thing. He actually really reflects totally in his, in his being, you know, what he is in, in, in some sense is totally steeped in. And that is why he is an impressive character. You know, and I'm not, I mean, I'm only singling him out because he's probably one of the most well-known Buddhist figures. I mean, there are many, many others throughout the world of Buddhism who equally show that kindness and compassion and ability to make indiv- each individual be seen. And that's what's so important. Um, some of you have you read The Art of Happiness? Um, yeah. It's a very interesting book because there's one particular instance where the Dalai Lama, and this is just another instance, I think, of this embodiment of panya and compassion that I'm talking about, where he was staying in a hotel in the States, <clears throat> and one morning was one of the um, cleaning ladies who was standing by the lift or something, and um, as he was being ushered off to where he was going to give his talk, he turned around and went over and shook her hand. Um, and then went off and did his talk and so the next morning came there were about three or four of them standing there the cleaning ladies and he went over and they went and shook all their hands and that and then went off and did it and said by the end of the week there was the whole hotel <laughs> in the hallway basically waiting to be greeted by the Dalai Lama in the morning <laughs> because of this you know and it's that, that ability he has and we also can have and this is the point I'm really trying to make to make others feel seen and noticed and recognised. And one of the great cries we often hear in the Western world is, I don't feel seen. I don't feel heard. I don't feel noticed. 
Well, it almost goes back to all that we're talking about here. Friendliness, kindliness, compassion. Above all, insight and understanding of what the needs of others might be. Not what only my needs are, but what are the needs of others. What is required by others. And I don't know if you'd agree with me, I think if you start to imbue those into your life, it will make you rich beyond material wealth. Okay, I just want to say a few words about another big topic, which could take us a whole week, but I won't, <laughs> which is the Eightfold Path, um, because we're talking about how to get out the mess, aren't we? And this is traditionally, of course, the great mess-solving path. In other words, it's the way that we create a way through our life. And it starts with right view and it ends up with right concentration. However, there is no hierarchy in it. And I'd add this. As we go through all of the elements of the Eightfold Path, it is not a route march from right view to right concentration. You know, all the way to the end on a straight line. It's not like that. The Buddhist path is loopy. And what I mean by that is each element feeds back into each other element. You know, if you develop something in one dimension of it, it feeds back into other dimensions. And so from the idea of right view and right intention, and then right action, of course, and right speech, all of these things are feeding into each other so that they're not mutually exclusive and separate. Again, that's probably one of the other messages I'd like you to hear. There's nothing separate about this. It's a rounded whole, it's a very, very holistic approach that every dimension of your life is involved. So, for example, in the Eightfold Path, we start or start off with right view. Well, actually, right view is usually defined as are many of the aspects of the Eightfold Path and defined in terms of what it is not, wrong view. Yeah. So the Buddha says very, very clearly, um, very enlighteningly, what is right view? Well, right view is not wrong view. <laughs> and what we, hear, we mean here by wrong view, is wrong view is some of the things we've already talk, talked about. Mistaking what is permanent, you know, what is impermanent for being permanent. What is not self for being self. What is dukkha for being happiness. All of those would constitute wrong view. What constitutes actually right view is the four ennobling truths. When one really understands those and immersed in them and really palpably begins to understand them, that constitutes, in other words, the problem, the cause, the cessation, and the path to the cessation. That is right view. Then, of course, we have right intention. Right intention, of course, is to do with all of our mental acts and all of our mental processes. You know, because remember, in many ways, I said, in terms of Buddhist ethics, intention is everything. Yeah? And so what is right intention? Well, the right intention is desirelessness. To do things without desire, without craving. Another right intention is friendliness. What we're engaged in. Metta. The development of friendliness, the development of kindness, the development of, of course, a wholesome mental attitude towards others. That they are, as I said last night, almost jokingly, but I was quite serious about it, that other beings are lovable. Yeah? They are out there and they are lovable 
and they're not simply irritating and annoying. <laughs> and then, of course, one of the final dimensions, because you nearly always get these broken up, of right intention is compassion. So friendliness and compassion and desirelessness. And that is what constitutes the right intention. Actually, it's another way of translating this. Is actually, these are all the correct intentions that we should have behind our actions. So that's in some sense, some sense of the litmus test for every action. Is the action you've just engaged in, is it desireless, friendly, and compassionate? What a wonderful test to get. Try that for a day. <laughs> is each of the actions I've engaged in desireless, friendly, and compassionate? Yeah. You can see what a task is, can't you? Yeah. If you really need to take that on board. Then of course we have right speech. Now I'm not going to go into that again because I talked about that last night. So just to, just to flag up the categories again of what right speech are. Right speech is defined by being, not being wrong speech. So wrong speech is of course false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and well I might as well go for it, for it useless speech. <laughs> And we might as well go the whole hog and say that one. So it's defined by what it's not. And again, just think about that in terms of your ordinary day-to-day -day life. And you can do that as a test, can't you? Yeah. Is what I've just said, is it, yeah, is it false? Is it harsh? Is it divisive? Or is it simply just useless? <laughs> yeah. I could push this even further, but I'm not going to do tonight. <laughs> Okay, right action. And actually, I just want to say something about the word right. It makes it sound like right on. <laughs> and it's not meant to be that. I mean, the actual word summer, which you know, for all of these, you know, summer ditty, for example, for right view, it means appropriate view. What, what is the view that's appropriate to hold you know, for the path? What is the speech that's appropriate for the path? Well, it's not these. You know, what is the intentions which are appropriate for the path? You know, it's desirelessness, of course, and friendliness and compassion, and so on and so forth. So it's always about the appropriateness of the action, not its right onness, you know, in a kind of um, you know, sort of colloquial sense of that term. So right action is to refrain from harming living beings. You know, this is coming back to the precepts. You notice, I hope you're noticing the way that often these things circle around, and you put them one way. You might put them in terms of precepts, and then you might put them in terms of the Eightfold Path, and you see them all coming back again. You might talk about the structure of the self. And the self, of course, isn't separated from the notion of something being dependently originated, and all of those factors, which are pretty well all of the factors, which constitute the self or in the process of psychological becoming, that constitute this realm of dependent origination. So all of the terms of being in sense of some sense, this is a perfect kind of ecological way of behaving. Everything's recycled <laughs> within it. Yeah. Nothing gets thrown away in, in this particular way of doing, a way of speaking about things. So the other aspect of right action, of course, is to refrain from taking what is not offered. That's another aspect of right action. To refrain from sensual misconduct. That's the other dimension of right action. And then, of course, there is right livelihood. 
Well, of course, right loudly is then defined by anything that doesn't engage you in wrong action and wrong speech. I can think of politicians having a really hard time here, <laughs> in many ways, you know, particularly with the wrong speech bit. Um, but there are many professions, of course, that you can imagine uh, that, well, not imagine, but you can see automatically, if one takes seriously the idea of earning one's livelihood correctly, that are disbarred, really, from people who are genuinely concerned about living well and being on this path. Obvious things, you know, such as uh, anything which involves killing. Yeah, so you know, working in a slaughterhouse or something like that is certainly out. You know, anything which encourages central misconduct. You know, so be, being a bartender is pretty tough <laughs> here. Um, so so on and so forth. I won't go into that because I think it's fairly obvious. You know, if one starts to think about right intention and right speech and right action, you know, what is actually going to be debarred here? Of course, it comes into then... Um, Areas of which um, are not so patently obvious, sometimes like working for large companies and corporations that might be engaging in those things, even though you are not engaging directly in them, but might be aiding them you know, in doing that and working for them. And that might, and I'm saying might, it might become an ethical consideration for you, you know, about how a company is operating in you know, the worldwide economy in the worldwide markets. Then we have, and I want to say this in terms of right view, right intention, what we have there is the panya dimension of the path. That is panya. That's what we had as the final part of the seven treasures here. The parts which I've spoken about, of course, in terms of speech, action, and livelihood are sila. They have to do with our moral ethical behaviour in this world. And the final three terms, and I'll just finish off on these and then open it up for briefly for some questions. The final three terms, effort, mindfulness and concentration, of course, are all to do with bhavana or samadhi. In other words, to do with the meditative practices. And so we have appropriate or right effort as being the first of the trilogy which really deals with you know, the, the meditative side of things. So right effort. Right effort is usually defined in this way, which is the effort to stop unwholesome states which haven't yet arisen from arising. The effort to eliminate unwholesome states which have already arisen. The effort to encourage wholesome states which not, haven't yet arisen to arise. And the effort to maintain wholesome states which already have arisen. Yeah, it covers it really pretty well all, doesn't it? Yeah. In other words, it's all of the unwholesome and wholesome dimensions of the mind. So it's, in other words, it's stabilizing the wholesome, encouraging the wholesome to arise, discouraging the unwholesome which hasn't yet arisen from arising in our life, and trying to eliminate the unwholesome states which have already arisen, which we have recognized. So it's very, very specific to meditative practice, and you'll see this all going on in your minds, because there'll be unwholesome states which have arisen, unwholesome states which haven't yet arisen. Yeah, and that's what we're engaging in doing there. Mindfulness, very quickly. Again, this could be subject of, is often the subject of whole retreats. 
um, right mindfulness. Because right mindfulness here is the contemplation of mindfulness of body, mindfulness of feelings. This is in a very technical sense of the term of feeling, of Vedana, of you know, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. I've often called it neutral, but actually the technical way of writing it down is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Here, of both mental and physical states. Then the mindfulness of mind. And then the mindfulness of mind contents. Or, actually, there's a technical term here, some of you might know, so I'll just use it for those who might be familiar with it. It's mindfulness of the dhammas, the things which compose all of our mental states. Here. So, in other words, as you can see, it gets progressively more and more subtle. You start off from, in a sense, a, a fairly gross element, which is the body, and being aware of what is going on in the body. Mindfulness of breathing, of course, is, is a mindfulness of body exercise. Um, but it works its way through, for example, through the constituents of the body, how the body is composed, how it's composed out of the elements, how it's composed out of all of the various kind of fluids in the body, how it's composed out of all the various bits and bones and all the rest of it. And so you get a real impression of what is going on in the body, what is actually happening in the body. And this is a really major dimension on mindfulness retreats, is actually getting into the content of the body, neither to overvalue it, in terms of its beautification, or to undervalue it in terms of saying it's repulsive. You know, it's to try and strike a balance between the two. In other words, it's becoming a realistic view of what is involved in embodiment, which, of course, we all are. We're all embodied. Then it's mindfulness of the feelings, mindfulness of what feelings are arising, you know, as they constantly arise and pass away, which they will, and they change continuously. You know, mindfulness of physical feeling, you know, for example, what is a pleasant feeling like um, leaving it for a while, moving to being unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, or back again to being pleasant, or back again to being unpleasant, and it will change continuously. You know, this is really usually to the annoyance of those around you. <laughs> yeah. Then we have the mindfulness of the feelings which are associated with the mental contents, the mind being a mental sensing organ. Just like the eye senses visible objects, the mind senses mental objects. And each of those mental objects which arises has a tone to it. And that tone is pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And it's finding that out. You know, what is going on? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neither? Again, watch its changing moods. What's its way it slips and slides between the various feelings? Then, of course, it's the mindfulness of mind, watching what is actually going on in the mind per se, as you know, mental thoughts and constructs arise in the mind and becoming aware of their right. And this is a very, very simplistic description here, just to give you a kind of impression of what's going on. So we're looking, in some senses, at the gross mental states that are arising and we see them. Then we break it down even further. Because each of those mental states, which we appear to be monolithic, are composed. They're composed out of smaller elements. And so we become aware of the smaller elements which make up the grosser elements. Here, All the time, through each of the 
very mindfulness meditations, moving as we do progressively down into subtler and subtler states, they're not I, not me, not mine. So in other words, it's taking it from the gross, the physical body, and all the elements and function of the physical body, that it's not I, that not me, not mine. Those feelings, both mental and physical, which are arising, they're not I, not me, not mine. The monolithic or seemingly monolithic states of mind which arise, yeah, the various colorations of what we call chitta, heart, mind, which are arising continuously and passing away. I'm sure you're all familiar with this. Yeah, that it's not I, not me, not mine. And finally down to what is actually composing those. They're not I, not me, not mine. So we're getting... Hopefully by the time you got to the last one, you get it. <laughs> you, know, you might have twigged what is actually going on. Uh, there's no guarantee. Then finally, of course, um, in the traditional way of laying out the Eightfold Path, and this is the final thing I have to say tonight, is right concentration. And this is usually defined in terms of the four jhanic states. Um, <clears throat> the jhanic states are progressive stages of concentration, you know, akin to learning a skill. When you learn any craft or learn any skill, it initially takes, takes application and thought to do it, which is generally associated with the beginning in the first jhanic state, the application of, of thought and the application of um, oneself into the process of doing it. Think about learning to drive or learning to play a musical instrument, you know, when you're doing those things you have to think constantly about what you're doing and keep applying yourself, don't you, in the first instances of learning any skill. Then you move on to a state where it becomes a little easier, which is almost akin to a second jhanic state, where things become, ooh, yes, I can do it a little bit, yes, but it's still unstable. <laughs> you know, there's still no stability there. There's no, there's kind of what's called pity there, joy, with a little bit of happiness involved. And then eventually, of course, you get the moving away from the kind of joyful state into another state where things become more blissful, a little happier, but it's still unstable. Both are agitated, both joy and bliss are still agitated. And the final point of all of this, and again I'll really cut it short, the final point of this is to get to one-pointedness, where nothing else is involved other than one point. It's what's called ekagata, which is just simple one-pointedness. And in terms of learning a musical instrument, it's the movement from being an absolute novice and beginning to becoming a maestro. <laughs> you know, where the maestro doesn't think about what they're doing, they play. They are being it. They are completely one-pointed in what they're doing. Now, just the final thing to wrap this all up, because it's been a longer talk tonight than perhaps some of the other talks have been. What you see in this, of course, is that concentration aids mindfulness. You can't do it. But without effort, concentration and mindfulness can't occur. Because effort is involved in both concentration and mindfulness. Yeah. And you can see, you can swap them around. I mean, the traditional way is laying them out in the way I've just spoken about them. Now, all of that, mindfulness and concentration and effort, are involved in all the dimensions of sila. They're all in, in the ways that we perceive our livelihood, our speech, because you need mindfulness. But in order to have mindfulness, you could have a degree of concentration yeah, in your ordinary daily life. In, to be able to see what's engaged in my speech acts, to engage in action, 
I've got to have some degree of mindfulness, and I've got to have some degree, of course, of concentration in order to perceive what's going on in my actions. And, of course, the views and intentions infuse the whole lot. So none of it is separate. It's all together. All together now. (laughs) And it's this holistic dimension of the path, really, that I want to leave you with tonight, because the Eightfold Path is the way out of the mess, together with things. I only gave you the seven treasures as a taste of the way that the kind of virtues are divided up in Buddhist thought in order to encourage you to practice, because it's an encourage you to practice, to encourage you to examine, to encourage you to hear and read more about this. You know, so that you integrate these three dimensions of the learning process into your daily lives and you know, daily thoughts and daily meditations here. Yeah. Okay, I'll shut up. I've gone on far too long tonight. You should have shut me up. <laughs> yeah. It obviously makes it harder. I mean, the ideal is obviously to have like-minded people around you um, to help you, to help support you. And if you can get together with like-minded people, it will encourage. I mean, I'm sure everybody's been involved in you know, doing collective meditation here. Gets a sense of solidarity when you, you, know, you all know you're suffering. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> But you get a sense of solidarity that arises when, when you sit with others. And also when you can engage in, in discussion often about you know, the topics that really matter, the things that really matter. So it doesn't just become idle chatter or useless speech or all the kind of stuff like that. However, it's not impossible on your own. It's certainly not impossible on your own. Um, it's just more difficult, is what I say. But... I would encourage people you know, to seek out groups and in most towns and cities these days certainly a bit more problematic obviously in areas that's rural countryside but in most towns and cities these days there are a number of groups even if you don't have to buy you don't have to buy into their particular brand of Buddhism or the particular brand of whatever or, or sign up to their uh, particular tradition but it's useful sometimes just to go along and to hear teachings and sometimes just to, to sit with people uh, and I would encourage anybody who's got you know, that as, you know, on their doorstep to do it. Um, but it's not impossible alone. Um, but I do think if, that, if you are trying to do it in isolation, you really need to come to things like this on a, on a reasonably regular basis. I'm not trying to sell a guy a house, but I'm just trying to just say you need it because it, it, it gives you some inspiration to keep on practicing often. Well, hopefully it does. <laughs> it gives you some inspiration to keep on practicing. He doesn't say anything about us specifically, but he, he, he's very strong on Sangha. Sangha is community and the idea of community. Um, I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the, traditionally they're spoken about there being four forms of Sangha, which is the, the, the Bhikkhuni Sangha, which is the nuns, the Bhikkhu Sangha, which is the monks, the lay, and the lay men and the lay women. 
and this is considered to be the Sangha. And it's, there's, there's solidarities and they're, they're all attempting to practice the Dhamma. They're all attempting, and this actually is what defines, in a sense, a lay Buddhist or a lay person on the path, is they take willingly um, the five precepts as being a way that they want to guide their lives. That is what defines some, a lay person. It defines, strictly speaking, a member of the traditional Sangha is that you are trying to adhere to the five precepts as a way of guiding your life um, minimally. So there's a lot about Sangha, there's a lot about community. And one of the things that, of course, we have as a problem in the West is, is building community. Because you know, it's, it's very new here, it's fledgling, really, honestly, in, in this country. I mean, when I first started in, the, in well, 1970, when I first became engaged in Buddhism, and there was virtually nothing around in Britain at that time. There were a few Tibetan communities. There was the, well, really quite rudimentary FWBO at that time, Friends of Western Buddhist Order, which had only kind of started a few years earlier than 1970. And there was actually nothing at all. I mean, this is heaven in comparison um, to what was around then. Um, but it's growing. And the point is, it's growing. And even if people don't, and this is, this is, and this is me, and I will, will say this is me, even if people don't call themselves Buddhist, which is really, to me, absolutely unimportant. I do simply because I've been involved in it so long. But it's about the people who are pr- practicing collective values. That's what's important. Um, practicing a way, that's what's important. It's not about Buddhist communities per se. It's about communities of like-minded people who think that this ethical, moral investigation and path of mindfulness is a way to trying to help to live a better life in this world. That's, that's what I feel about it. And so it's really trying to get together as many people as possible. And there are a number of, for example, sitting groups which are associated with Guy House throughout the country. Um, where people come together because they like this particular type of approach, which is non-sectarian, basically. Yeah. So it's kind of, again, response rather than answer to your question. Yeah. Gabriel first, then. When taking uh, precepts, uh, what is the way to do that? In, in... <laughs> well, it's usually, precepts are usually traditionally taken with a monk. With a monk. Yeah, with a monk. Um, usually a, a, a small little ceremony um, which just involves you formally taking the precepts and formally committing yourself to the precepts. That's the here, um, well, there's one here recently. I mean, Bhikkhu um, um, uh, Bhante you know, was here recently who offered precepts. Um, you know, Bhante Gurunaratna, I should say. So my mind's going at the time. <laughs> Uh, but you know, monks, for, for example, um, going sometimes to Theravadan communities, they will regularly offer the precepts to lay people who wish to take them, you know, without any commitment to joining up to their group or anything. Yeah. So if you want to really take them seriously. But again, you see, I personally feel I mean, it's nice to do that kind of formal, uh, formal commitment. But really it's about here, isn't it? It's how you commit yourself here to those things because you can formally take the commitment and really not take it here um, but if you've got it here and you take the formal commitment it's like a double thing as well but uh, the most important thing is having it in your heart that you really really wish to try and live your life not guaranteed that you're going to do it but to want to guide your life by those precepts it's so such a lovely thing to do I personally feel yeah. Yeah. Um. 
Paul. This question is sort of more of a response to your thoughts this morning, um, which I found sort of challenging and inspiring. And um, I was wondering, do you think that you can be like a, uh, an affluent capitalist entrepreneur and an authentic, you know, practitioner of Dharma? It depends on your level of, of uh, chaga or generosity, doesn't it? Because, you see, the Buddha actually, it's interesting, when you look at the suttas, and the Buddha actually does say something about this. Uh, he has nothing against wealth generation. The Buddha actually has nothing against wealth generation. He thinks it's particularly, I mean, he thinks it's important certainly for you know, individuals with families that the, the, the breadwinner needs to earn sufficient and to generate, generate enough income to be able to support families um, properly. Um, he has nothing against, for example, in his day, of course, you know, the, the kind of capitalists would be the kings and the aristocracies of that time. He has nothing against them generating wealth as long as that wealth is then distributed down to the people itself. You know. So, per se, there's, nothing, there's not a problem. You know, it depends on, if you like, the, the philanthropy of the person who's involved. You know, so it comes down to, you know, because you can have somebody who's extremely poor but incredibly miserly, and you can have somebody extremely rich and incredibly philanthropic, you know, trying to do good with their, you know, their generation of wealth. Um, there's all sorts of stories about this in the traditions, you know, about the way, you know, even those who have, you know, there's a wonderful story in the tradition, actually, about um, a particular wealthy aristocrat who gives away everything. He gives away all of his money and all of his possessions in order to join the monastic sangha. But someday, one day, somebody takes his begging bowl and he gets really angry. <laughs> <laughs> You know, showing how actually it's about the attitude of mind, you know, you can give away an awful lot, but the attitude of mind can't just be now devolved onto something very specific. <laughs> but you, but you, uh, you, know, you don't want to lose or give away. So it's that, it's that, you know, it depends on the intention, it depends on the openness of mind of the individual. So it is quite, I mean, to answer your question straight, it is quite possible to do that. I think, given the greed of our societies, it's quite unusual to find that, that degree of philanthropy, but not totally, obviously. It's good to hear that, because often um, there, I get a sense of coming to um, Buddhist stuff that you know, there is sort of almost a kind of capitalism is, is in and of itself, like a dirty word, and I, I think a lot, a lot of people Maybe I think from my experience, sort of tend to be in more caring professions and, and teaching and mm. things like that. And I mean, I earn my life as a, as a businessman, and it, you sometimes mm. feel a little bit like you know, um, sort of unvalued, I suppose. Mm. You know, well, I, I think I think we do need that correction because it is it is very easy to demonise particular classes. Um, and it's, it's, it's like our material possessions. There's nothing, actually, there's nothing wrong with them. I mean, those material possessions are not little devils out there waiting to get you. You know, those material possessions are entirely under your control. It's how you use them. And the theory of money, if you generate money, it's how you use it that becomes important. Money, per se, is not a problem. 
You know, it's how you use it. It's the fact, of course, um, where capitalism becomes a problem is becomes with the, the, the hoarding of it and the lack of the distribution of it, you know, um, which creates these inequalities in society and creates a lot of the violence and the tensions and the greeds and, you know, so on and so forth with it. I think people often look at that and they just go, oh, it's the whole problem is the, is the, is the system. And it's not necessarily always the system, it's the individuals within the system. That becomes important. I think we need to look at that a lot more without perhaps overgeneralising, and there is always that tendency to overgeneralise. Okay. I haven't got time for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hmm. I suppose it's it's the of well, does it work and how you know how patient you need to be. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you want to quantify the amount of patience. <laughs> Patience is required. It's it's it is considered to be one of again one of the virtues. It's actually in <clears throat> in the traditional role, it's actually called a piranha or polita, perfection. Actually, it's the thing to develop is the perfection of patience. Sometimes it also can be translated as perfection of forbearance. Because it means that even while we're on the path, we're going to suffer. We're still going to suffer. You know, because we, we're not perfect. We haven't developed it yet. Um, even with something you know, such as trying to get a degree of concentration, it takes effort and it takes a degree of patience. It's not going to occur overnight, is what we're saying. Um, and I think... If one takes that um, to heart, if you take the idea to heart that you need patience, because we're very, very impatient, actually, in the West. This is one of the things that we're very impatient. Um, when I was learning in, in India, in Tibetan communities and in Sri Lanka as well, one of the things I often pointed out, that Westerners learn very quickly, but they're really impatient, they're really pushy, you know, to kind of learn things, uh, which is a very... Um, well, it's a very un-Indian, very un-Tibetan attitude to be that kind of pushy about things. <clears throat> and also we want to, because we live in a quick culture, we want things instantly. You know, we live in the land of instant things, don't we? <laughs> you know, we've got a headache, take an aspirin. You know, um, got a problem, we try and do this, and X and Y and Z, and you know, we try to do things very, very, very quickly. And really, well, it's not quantifiable, but, you know, it's having a degree of being able to sit through difficulty. It's coming back to one of the themes I think I probably mentioned that in, which was the difficulty that we're going through. You have to have patience to go through that difficulty. And also one of the things I would also say is sometimes actually the sitting will not manifest all of the qualities that you're getting out of the practice of sitting. You know, when you're sitting here, sometimes, even to me on occasions, it can feel torture. You know, I've been doing it for 30 odd years. Yeah. Um, on occasions it can feel really tough going to, to sit for long periods of time um, yet it's what actually manifests suffering in our ordinary life out of that sitting um, where you see it so in a way the other thing about patience is don't necessarily keep judging yourself it's actually, it's actually the ways that you'll see it manifesting is actually the way others react to you yeah. Sometimes people actually say, well, you're a little bit kinder today than we usually are. <laughs> a little less impatient. 
you know, things like that. And, and for example, just in ordinary life situations. Um, I mean, I, I really began to um, know that something was occurring when I was living in India when I didn't start getting irritated at Indian railways. <laughs> you know, when I was on a train that was 12 hours late. <laughs> I mean, 12 hours? <laughs> That's half a day. <laughs> You know, then I knew I'd develop some patience. <laughs> you know, but it's those sorts of things. It's when you just find yourself thinking, oh yeah, 12 hours. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> and all myself, I'm kind of sending this one up a bit for deliberate purposes. But as you can see what I mean, it's just those little things. You begin to notice it in little things initially. Just that little ability to stay with something a little bit longer, the ability to sit a little bit longer. Um, but you will still find difficulty and it still requires that perfection of patience. So it's not quantifiable. It's, it's an ongoing process, basically. <laughs> okay, well, I suggest we take five minutes as a break and we'll have a slightly shorter meditation to finish this evening. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.